0: You're listening to The Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into The Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to The Economics Review. Our guest today is the head of the geoeconomics program at the German Council on Foreign Relations, as well as a senior economist at the Soros Fund Management, um, where he served as a personal advisor to George Soros. Um, Prior to this, he was the economic advisor to Emmanuel Macron at the French Ministry for Economy and Finance, um, where he focused on European economic affairs. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the show, Shaheen Bali. Thank you. Um, So Shaheen, I wanted to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and what you do. Uh, So I'm an economist
1: by training, but I've always been working at the intersection of uh, of economic policy, international affairs and and, and politics, Uh, and uh, I've served uh, both in the public sector uh, advising the president of the European Council in Brussels, as well as in uh, France, working for the economy minister. And I've worked in the private sector as well uh, in finance, both for source management, but also for BNP Paribas, where, where I was an economist in, in, in both places. And finally, I've served in a couple of think tanks, um, Bruegel in Brussels, and and more recently, the DGAP in, uh, in, in, in Berlin, where, where I'm working on, on issues at the intersection of, uh, of foreign policy uh and economic affairs
0: okay um so can you please tell us a bit about how you got started with um, economics uh and a bit about what specifically um your research has included
1: um, so, I was uh, trained as a macroeconomist in, in France, and I've always been uh, fascinated by international macro issues. Uh, and the field of, of international macro is, is very broad, and I think has, has broadened uh, mm-hmm. even more in, in, in the last few years uh, to encompass such things as trade policy and sanctions, uh, you know, uh, coerciveness of economic policy, um, the organization of the international monetary system, and maybe we'll discuss that when we'll talk about the sanctions that are being imposed on 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 Russia uh, today, and the inner workings of the financial system, which um, a lot of economists uh, took for granted for a long while, until uh, we realized that the plumbing of the financial system was uh, a substantial macroeconomic and macrofinancial uh, risk, and I think that's a realization that that came to the fore in the uh, you know, in, in the follow-up of the of the global financial crisis in
0: two thousand and eight. Okay, um, so I wanted to talk to you today primarily about the ongoing Russia Ukraine crisis and its economic implications for Europe. So I wanted to start off by getting your take on the potential Russian energy ban in Germany um, and in the rest of Europe, which has been so hotly debated recently. So, would you um, be in favor of such a ban, and why or why not? Yes. Yeah, so f- first, I think uh semantics matter so i don't think we
1: should be shy of calling this a war rather than a conflict uh and i think it's important because um in times of war you do things that you would normally not consider and you do things that you know include uh you know imparting a cost on on your own economy because that's the price to pay for leading for leading and staging a war so um at the moment we've imposed a number of of, of sanctions on on russia Uh, but we continue to import uh, Russian oil and gas to the tune of you know, nearly a billion dollars a day, and uh, and this may actually keep going higher if energy prices continue to, to 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 increase. So that's a real that's a real challenge, and I think it's difficult to claim that you're fighting uh, a war uh, with an enemy that effectively you're cutting checks to um, uh, every day for for this amount, which allows to finance the war the war effort. So I think Europe needs to think very seriously um, about. Uh, reducing its dependency on Russian oil and gas, and it needs to do so now. You know, I think there is some discussion about how can we uh, reduce uh, this dependency over time, and I think the question is not how to reduce it over time, is how to do it uh, immediately. The U.S. took the decision quickly, followed by the U.K. to ban uh, oil and energy imports from from uh, from Russia. But it's a very easy decision to take for the U.S., uh, who's a net exporter of energy and and barely relies on 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 Russian imports. It's uh, it's a much more difficult uh, decision to take in Europe. Where uh, Russian imports, you know, are about uh, you know one third of of total uh, oil and gas imports for Europe, and in some countries uh, like uh, Austria, Germany, or even Italy, uh, they're the overwhelming majority of of energy imports, and you know, an entire web of of infrastructure is designed uh, around around that uh, that uh, that network and 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 that import system. So, what's very difficult for Europe. Although not impossible, uh, is to cut these supplies and find alternative sources of energy, and that requires huge investments in infrastructure. Because you know, in order to basically you know stop importing uh, gas through pipelines, but in, import gas through uh, uh, through ports, if you have liquefied natural gas, you need to build the, the port terminal. You need to have the infrastructure. You need to have the storage, and not all the European countries uh, have that. So I think the challenge is huge. And it requires uh, immense investments in energy infrastructure, but it also, in the short term, and this is what's more difficult to accept, probably requires rationing the use of energy in Europe. And that's valid both for consumers as well as uh, for corporations. And so that means accepting now to pay quite a heavy toll for uh, you know cutting our dependency on Russian gas and basically you know accepting that we are going to stop Steel mills and aluminum producers and you know whatever are the very high energy intense uh, intense uh, sectors of the economy we need to switch them off or at least ration their access to energy uh, for as long as necessary to to reduce that and that's the fundamental economic and policy decision that I think European uh, leaders are going to have to make um, and it's one that seems daunting for many of them. Um, But when you look back at what we have achieved in particular during COVID, uh, I think there is some hope to be had about the fact that Europe is actually prepared, uh, if and when necessary, to shut off a portion, if not the entirety of its economy, uh, in the case of COVID, to fight an epidemic. And I think in the case of today to fight the war. So I think we've proven not only that we could do it, but also that we have sort of the the policy instruments to compensate the losers for such uh, of such decisions. And so while I appreciate the difficulty of, of taking the leap, uh, I, I think uh, European policymakers and leaders have to think very seriously about it.
0: Okay, yeah, um, and so I wanted to ask you about what, what that could potentially look like. Obviously, a lot of economies, um, you know, still recovering from the coronavirus pandemic. Um, a lot of them took, um, e- extreme amounts, um, to their national, added extreme amounts to their national debt, um, you know, that that was completely unprecedented. Many of them shut down for quite a long time. Um, unemployment was very high. A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of businesses um, are really struggling. So, given um, this already, the, the state of the economy that was already very fragile and is just starting to recover, um, if if we woke up tomorrow and and some of those countries like you mentioned uh, Italy and Austria, if they were to to ban um, Russian imports. Um, what, what could that potentially look like for, for the rest of the economy, for the everyday um, individual? Uh,
1: so, you know, it could mean uh, reduction in the number of supplies in supermarkets. It could mean redundancy uh, or low schemes for workers in energy intensive industries. It could mean compensation by the government to these industries for the loss uh, uh, output. So I think there would be a clear Uh, you know, fiscal costs to this. And I think the real question is basically how much governments are prepared to compensate this fiscal cost. There will be, of course, a quite substantial increase in energy cost. uh, uh, And and basically the the, the choice by the governments is twofold. You know, how much do we ration? Uh, So how much do we basically accept to sacrifice economic output to to lead this war? You know, do we sacrifice 10% of output, 20% of output or more? Um, And then how much of that we basically consider as a loss for the consumers, as a loss for (coughs) corporations, or how much of that we compensate. If you look at COVID, basically, we took the decision to pretty much close the entirety of the economy and to compensate pretty much all of the losers. So we basically fiscalized this loss of output. We compensated both corporations and individuals, so we could do the same uh, in this case, which would impart, you know, great fiscal cost. Or we could say, okay, you know, this is a burden that everybody has to carry, and you know, we're not going to compensate fully corporations, and we're not going to compensate fully households. You know, both uh, options are possible. Uh, I think they uh, has they have to be decided, you know, on the basis of economic merit as well as on the basis of, of of politics. But basically, what I what I think we should be reassured by. Is that uh, it is technically possible, and uh, and those who say it's not, I think you know, forget a bit quickly uh, the efforts uh, uh, that were put together uh, during the COVID crisis to basically you know shut down uh, you know the economy almost almost entirely.
0: Um, okay, and so assuming um, Europe decided to to take on this the challenge, um, say we woke up tomorrow and. You know every virtually every country um across europe had said we will no longer from today be importing any russian oil any russian gas what would this do um to russia obviously um like you mentioned it's a it's an enormous amount of money um that that europe is paying for for these resources to russia every day um could that could that be the could that be it um would that be enough to just end the war almost immediately or does russia still have um enough in their war chest to keep this going um and see it through anyway
1: um, so it would not be immediate you know Russia still has considerable amount of resources Russia would probably be able to continue to sell its energy to other buyers uh, most notably uh, China so it would not uh, cut entirely the flow of revenues and hard currency revenues to to Russia at all you know um so you know I think and so it wouldn't mean that from one day to the next, the Russian uh, economy would not be able to sustain the war effort in, in Ukraine, but it will be seriously uh, impaired in, in, in doing that. And I think it would send also a political message of, of commitment uh, to, to Russia uh, that would uh, have, I think, pretty important political consequences beyond the immediate you know, financial, financial cost of it. So, you know, I think you know, it's, it's delusional to think that this would end the war. Uh, but I think it would be uh, really sad if Europeans, uh, you know, did not fight this war with all uh, the instruments they can, and that's that's an instrument that uh, you know is, is you know should be or must be considered
0: um yeah and so uh, i mean i've been i've been looking through the the arguments from both sides for this to spend and it, it seems to me that often when we when we do talk about this or or even other sanctions uh, just more broadly um uh, one of the points that people tend to bring up is that historically um what these sanctions have done instead of um impede the elites or or um slow down the war effort um the the majority of their impact is is on you know, everyday Russian individuals, Russian citizens, um, and cutting off these revenues would just cause immense amounts of suffering for the Russian people, um, while not doing too much to deter the elites um, who are in command of this war. So, um, do you think? To, to what extent do you think that? No, no, that's is true? true.
1: I mean, I think the, the 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 record of of sanctions and embargoes uh, globally to uh, coerce a, a country to do or not do something is poor. When you talk about the sanctions on Iran, on Iraq, uh, on Cuba, uh, the the record is is poor. That being said, I think the the sanctions we're designing today are of a a different kind in the sense that, yes, of course, and that's um, uh, a collateral damage. They uh, impart great suffering and great cost on the Russian economy as a whole and therefore on the, you know, on the, on the Russian individuals, um, and on the Russian people. But they're also quite targeted to, uh, inflict a lot more pain and damage on the Russian, uh, the Russian elite. So sadly, there is a collateral damage, which is uh, uh, the Russian people. Uh, um, but I think these sanctions uh, are probably a lot more targeted and specific uh, than uh, the sanctions on Cuba or on on Iran uh, were and, and and are. So I think that's that's a difference that's worth noting. But it's. It's, we also have to be realistic. I, I, I don't think, you know, uh, uh, even aggressive sanctions on oil and energy, as I said earlier, would end the war uh, immediately. We're probably, uh, you know, if there is no uh, diplomatic solution and peace negotiated, we're probably uh, on our way to a, a very protracted conflict uh, with a battle uh, in the streets of, of,
0: of Ukraine that could last for months, if not years. Um, Okay. And so I also wanted to ask you a bit more about the sanctions that have already been implemented. Um, So besides the oil and gas ban, um, there have been several rounds of sanctions from um, most European countries. So I wanted to ask you, um, in in your opinion, how effective have those sanctions so far been? Um, And is there anything besides the oil and gas ban that may prove more successful? So the first
1: round of sanction was basically a typical round of sanctions on individuals so you know the very targeted sanctions that i referred to uh, individuals that are close to um, you know uh, decision making circles uh, or that were benefiting from uh, uh, putin's um, uh, support um The second round of sanction was more financial sanctions, so targeting financial institutions uh, and and companies, preventing them to raise capital in international markets, uh, and uh, preventing them from transacting by basically the targeted sanction and exclusion of SWIFT. SWIFT is a a messaging system between banks that allows to do international transfers. A lot of people thought this was a very significant step. And I quite early on said that, you know, we have to think of of SWIFT as just, you know, a very advanced uh, fax machine, so you know it's it's uh, it's bad if, you, if you're cut out from your fax machine. But it's not the end of the world. Actually, it does not prevent you entirely from making from from making international uh, transfers. And importantly. There were very significant uh, exclusions from this uh, uh, S- uh, swift ban, uh, precisely to allow energy-related transactions to be uh, to go through. And I think this is the critical uh, weakness of of these sanctions. And the fact, you know, basically they are, you know, entirely ineffective. Um, if uh, if you continue to want uh, to import oil and to be able to settle the transaction for this for this oil, and the last element of sanction, which to me is the most powerful and which has the the, the most far-reaching consequence, it was basically the freezing of the assets of, of the Central Bank of Russia, and this is a very important uh, decision because basically Russia had about six hundred billion dollars worth of reserves, many of them accumulated since two thousand fourteen after. Uh, Russia suffered sanction precisely to be able to uh, fight uh, uh, a war and sanctions and, and and the economic cost of of, of sanctions with this uh, uh, war chest of, of reserves. Uh, effectively, what uh, the US uh, and, and Europe did with freezing the assets the central bank was basically neutralizing about two-thirds uh, of the, the Russian central bank reserves, which is very meaningful because it means that it's going to be a lot more difficult for Russia to mobilize dollars to support its exchange rates, to support its banking system, to meet its international uh, international payment obligations, which probably means that this has increased the probability of a sovereign and of corporate uh, defaults from Russia on the rest of the world. But it also means that Russia is less able to use uh, its dollars and euros to acquire weaponry, to support its economy. And so it has made
0: the cost of leading this war a lot, uh, a lot higher than it, than it would have been otherwise. All right. um, So next, I wanted to ask you about the ramifications of the refugee crisis that this invasion has created as the war drags on with um, no end in sight. So millions of people have fled mainly into Poland, which is now under immense pressure. So um, in your view, what should the rest of Europe be doing and what might the economic effects of uh, such a refugee crisis be for the region um, if millions of people were in fact permanently displaced um, in the event of a prolonged war?
1: So, um, yeah, I think we are going to see a wave of, uh, of, uh, of uh, migration uh, that is going to be historical. Uh, the response so far of Europeans has been extraordinarily united and welcoming towards these refugees. And, and I hope it stays that way. Of course, there is a short term cost. To welcoming um, these uh, these refugees, to be able to you know house them, school them, provide uh, provide you know essential humanitarian and uh, aid and, and health uh, uh, benefits when 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 required. Uh, so that's going to be a short term cost, but ultimately you know we know that uh, you know influx of population and in particular a fairly educated population helps uh, boost the economy down the line. And that's why, for instance, while you know the you know massive wave of immigration from Syria into Germany in two thousand and fourteen and fifteen was a big cost in the first place. but now, as these people are being integrated in the workforce it's actually helping to make both the working population in Germany younger uh, and to make it bigger so this is uh helping the the German economy provided. You invest enough uh, when these people arrive to train them, school them, and put them on 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 the job market, which you know, happened fairly successfully in Germany with Syrian immigration, and so there's uh, little doubt that it could happen with the same, if not greater, level of success with uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, refugees uh, this time around. So I, I think you know this could be a point of tension between member states in the sense that you know at some point maybe Poland will say you know we we have maxed out on our capacity to welcome uh ukrainians and and others uh other countries should uh should help us um which is basically what happened uh with uh, immigration from uh, from from syria during the during the war by the way so you know there was a key fight inside europe for sharing the the, the burden even though i don't i don't like to use this this term uh of uh, of of my, of, my, of migrants Uh, And I think we'll probably have similar debates uh, along these lines. But to some extent, we've proven uh, in the case of of the war in Syria that we were able to solve this. So I'm I'm not terribly worried about uh, about this.
0: Yeah. And so I did want to talk to you um, in a little bit more detail about the parallels um, to the Syrian refugee crisis that took place a couple of years ago. Um, Germany took one of the highest numbers of refugees anywhere in the world. Um, there was a, a big debate at the time about the impact that this would have, with some arguing that it would be a, a long-term boost, while others contending that it would it could spell disaster for Germany. So um, looking back to this, um, like you've just mentioned, um, if you take the time to a- a- and allocate the resources to educate and make sure that these people um, integrate and assimilate into society, then it can be a boost in the, in the long run. Um, however, a lot of countries back when this crisis occurred um, in 2014 were very reluctant to accept um, refugees. A lot of them you know, were very hostile, um, closed their borders. Um, and other countries, like I just mentioned, Germany were um, very o- open. So seven, uh, eight years down the line, um, I wanted to ask you what what this has meant for Germany. Um, some of the other countries that uh, were closed off to refugees last time, and if you think that the example that Germany set um, when the Syrian refugee crisis occurred uh, is is um, can be mirrored in in other countries, um, it, it, should there be another refugee crisis?
1: Uh, no, it's a it's a good question. So, I mean, uh, I haven't seen and I haven't done myself a, a proper, rigorous assessment of the effect of you know this wave of immigration and on the on the Syrian economy, on the on the, on on the German economy. Sorry, uh, but I think by and large, uh, the studies that have looked at the integration in the workforce, for instance, were extremely were extremely encouraging. So, I think what Germany has done well and probably um, uh, better than uh, than others uh, is to um, uh, provide the right amount of training, actually mandatory language training for uh, all uh, uh, refugees and and migrants coming into Germany, uh, and the right amount of professional uh, training, providing also housing and and schooling, affordable housing and and schooling to to these people quite, quite early on. So I think you know my sense, even though I haven't done the work, and it's probably a bit too early to do it, is that uh, Germany's uh, you know uh, immigration policy at that time uh, uh, has been a a resounding uh, a resounding success, and I think that spells uh, some hope for uh, this new wave of migration coming from Ukraine. That being said, it's also not clear. I mean, it depends to some extent on the conflict, you know, whether. This is a temporary immigration, uh, and people who will uh, and will want to return to Ukraine when the situation stabilizes, or whether this is a permanent immigration. I think to some extent it depends on the situation on the ground and the extent to which this conflict lasts. you know if this conflict uh, stretches into the weeks, the months, and the years, uh it's probably less likely that people who will have moved and you know set up their families uh, in a new countries will will make them move back, but if it's just you know, a short-term uh, uh, conflict, then, then, then maybe uh, you know this population is not going to uh, uh, to to settle in a new country.
0: Okay. um, And so finally, I wanted to ask you about one of your other research interests um, regarding the role of Europe in a potential US-China confrontation. So the role of Western Europe and its interests, as you've pointed out in the past, are moving away from being viewed solely as an extension of the United States. So given the European Union's lack of a central executive or government, its ability to pursue collective interests without unanimous consent is limited, unlike um, the United States. So given the current organization, how do you think Europe? Europe's role will change over the coming decades, and is is there some sort of way, uh, so, sorry, some sort of change to the way the EU is set up um, necessary to improve uh, Europe's power and influence on the world stage?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I think this crisis has been a, an incredible awakening for many countries uh, about the fact that Europe, you know, could no longer uh, delegate its uh, safety and security to the United States. Um, and that Europe could no longer assume that the economic uh, relations that were built over the last 50 years uh, were stable enough to rest our entire economic model on these relations. And so, to, to, to be to be very blunt, an economic system that is uh, extraordinarily dependent both on Russian energy and on uh, Chinese uh, um, imports uh, is an economic system that is extraordinarily vulnerable. And I think that uh, realization came home during this crisis more than at any other point. And that led to very important decisions, you know, the decision by Germany to uh, spend 100 billion euros to um, re-equip its military and to commit to spend 2% of GDP per year on its defense, which it had never done uh, uh, before. So these are pretty uh, seismic changes. Where you're right is that they're probably not enough. And I think what we need next is for Europe to think a bit more deeply about what does that entail for its institutional makeup and uh, what sort of... um, changes are necessary for Europe to be able to be truly behaving like a sovereign rather than the sum of individual sovereign who, you know, need unanimity to take any decision. The French have been, as you know, lobbying very hard to build what they call strategic autonomy, which is a euphemism for, uh, you know, Europe's ability to act, its common resources, its uh, common military uh, and the common uh, security and defense policy. I think where the French um, have been right is to insist on sort of the instruments to do that. Where I think we're missing something uh, is the democratic underpinning of, 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 of these instruments. So, you know, who, if we are to have a European defence capacity of sorts, who is going to decide on the use of force? It cannot be a single individual, as it is the case in France, where basically the president has the executive authority to wage a war. In practice, he needs to ask uh, a mandate from the parliament, but in reality, it rarely occurs that way. Um, And and, and, and so it cannot be a single man or woman. uh, and And it also cannot be Uh, you know, subject to the veto of 27 and maybe soon, you know, 30 member states if and when Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia and others and the Western Balkans start to join the EU. So that means we have to accept uh, that the governance around the use of force uh, becomes more collegial, and that uh, member states give up their veto rights uh, in in uh, common security and defense policy, which is a pretty major um, uh, deal for many countries, in particular for France. And so, I think this is where uh, the debate will be in the next few years. You know, if we are to build a true uh, defense in Europe. Uh, how are we going to rethink the institutions around this, point one? And maybe before that, uh, for in many countries, the real question is, do we really want to build a common European defense? Or do we want to carry on with national defense under the umbrella of, of NATO? And I think that's a question that uh, in many capitals hasn't been answered. Some people you know, were extremely pleased when Germany announced its commitment to spend and to build a European defense. Um, only to realize a few days later, actually just two days ago, uh, that Germany also committed to buy new F thirty uh, five fighter jets, which basically is embedding Germany even more in a, in a sort of transatlantic defense partnership rather than in a European one. Rather, or in conjunction with a European one. And I think that is the articulation of of that 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 continues to be um to be a real question mark.
0: Yeah, uh, and so a couple of things there. Um, I think spurred by this conflict, there were, um, th- this conflict um, could serve as quite the catalyst um, for a move in, in the direction which which you spoke about. Um, you're pursuing it's it's um, common defense interests um, I think um, in, in w- when comparing the EU to the United States more broadly um, they have roughly similar populations roughly similar GDP roughly similar um, land size so geographically um, and financially they look to be you know comparable um, however, uh, obviously, Europe is a lot more culturally diverse than the United States. I, I think places like Georgia and Moldova are very different um, culturally, ethnically um, from uh, places like France or the Netherlands. Um, so, I think if if we were to go about creating this sort of system, um, where you know individual member states give up their veto rights to some sort of central. Um, central um government that can negotiate on on all their behalfs you know to to, be, to act as a more powerful entity than um, than than any of its respective parts um do you think there is some sort of way in which we could potentially administer um elections um across all eu member states where everyone gets a vote and who who gets to make these decisions um is there some way in which we could make it um, you know still a democratic system um wh- however wh- where europe could be making these decisions collectively
1: uh yeah i think so I, I think you're right it's part of the challenge uh but uh but you know we have uh, a european parliament uh, we have a european commission that is not exactly uh behaving like uh, europe's executive but i think will evolve towards being that so you you're right to point to you know quite deep institutional changes uh, that are necessary uh because if we are to take the sort of you know sovereign uh uh decisions such as you know <laughs> raising taxes uh, uh or uh you know waging wars these needs to be taken uh with uh, with uh, with stronger um, institutions and with more democratic institutions but i think the building blocks are are there so i think the short answer and i don't know if this is what you were pointing to is of course we will need to have a very profound institutional debate and 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 overhauls of our treaty and maybe overhauls as well of national constitutions in many countries to, to, to enable that. But I think that's the direction that Europe is taking. And even if it takes another decade or two to get there, I think it's good to have in mind that this is the this is the, the direction of travel.
0: Well, Shane, those are all the questions I have for you today. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's, it's been a, a great pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.